In- incidentally, what does an ethics chief do? I've never come across this position before. Do you have the, the down low on this? Because I-, I do not know. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure who the ethics chief for the spectator is. Certainly not you. <laughs> God forbid. Uh, I-, I think that uh, an ethics chief at the civil service is in charge of uh, enforcing the rules and um, very much ref- being having all cases referred to her. So... Um, this is very delicious, I have to say. I mean, God, if only Yes Minister was still around and we could see what the writers would have to say about that. But um, mm. Helen McNamara, I mean, you, you couldn't make it up, could you? And uh, well done to the Telegraph for breaking that story. Arguably, the best thing about this is, in fact, the hypocrisy as opposed the to... The irony, the... yeah, indeed. Oh, isn't it? You guys, you're getting, you're getting harmful red meat, Operation Red Meat for the ASI <laughs> in your court, you know. <laughs> Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Emily Fielder, our Head of Communications, and James Heal, the Diary Editor at The Spectator. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the privatisation of Channel 4, the ongoing Partygate scandal and wider civil service culture, and finally, the government's recently announced energy security strategy. This week, the Secretary of State for Culture announced the government's intentions to privatise Channel 4. No, no cheers from my, uh, my two guests there? Okay, in that case, I'll carry on. Uh, Channel 4, of course, being a state-owned broadcaster since its inception under Margaret Thatcher's government in 1982. There's been, unsurprisingly, I think, a considerable amount of backlash around the decision, uh, headed up, I hasten to add, by TV producers, uh, even though it appears that many people were previously unaware that Channel 4 was even government-owned in the first place. Uh, And to kick things off, I think, for both of you, the most important question here, what is everyone's favourite Channel 4 show at the moment, and do you think it will uh, survive post-privatisation when exposed to market forces? Emily, you're going to you first. Oh, well, it's got to be, it's a sin, but I feel like it's a really obvious answer. But it's, you know, closely followed by Made in Chelsea, which I'm aware I'm going to get mocked by, by the rest of the office after I've said that, but that's fine. Um, but turning to your second point, look, I think that, I think the thing with the privatisation of Channel 4, it's not an indictment on Channel 4, right? We should want it to be able to flourish unfettered by state control. So, for example, at present, it doesn't even own any of its own intellectual property or production company, and or it just has to commission work so if it got to produce its own intellectual property um this was obviously required awful lot of revenue and startup costs so it would really need to access private funds oh of course my my former uh, favorite channel 4 show was the news only when john snow was uh, involved in that as a as a solid and stalwart friend of the asi we've had many uh, many positive interactions with but uh james your your thoughts on this and also if if i can trouble you for your, your favorite c4 show sure well i thought it was very telling that um emily's favorite show was a show based in the 80s which of course i think when um you know it's a sin was um i think that's that sort of sums up a lot of channel four problems is that a lot of its um favorite shows are sort of things living off the past i mean the number of times i clicked on there and seen um, Everyone Loves Raymond and uh, The Simpsons. I was going to say The Simpsons is probably my favourite show, but just like Channel 4, it sort of peaked in 1993 and um, hasn't (laughs) delivered much recently. When I was at the Mail on Sunday before The Spectator, I remember I had to go through uh, for three years, every every week, the Barb ratings of TV ratings releases the 100 most watched shows. And you have to go through and see what shows make the top 100. And I think for about three years, anecdotally, off the top of my head, I think there's about two or three 
um, shows that made it in that weren't Gogglebox. Other than Gogglebox, Channel 4 very, very rarely makes the top ratings. And the problem is that this was a whole station set up to be innovative broadcasting culture. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it just seems to be endless Kirsty Allsop shows, which is probably why she came out and said that Tory MPs who voted for this traitor to their party and their country, which, um, you know, what can I say, uh, is, is quite a statement to make. But um, I, I think the danger is that Channel 4 does produce, um, you know, good hits um, occasionally. And of course, I'm with a certain generation that remembers Skins and, uh, you know, very much sort of 2007, 2008 coming of age culture. But uh, there doesn't seem to have been uh, the same level of innovation that one might hope to see from that channel. Um, and of course, Charles Moore wrote in Spectator this week, just to plug my own product, which is... Um, that that Thatcher herself, you know, a lot of stories come out and said, oh, we shouldn't do this because Margaret Thatcher created Channel 4. Well, Thatcher herself in the later years of her premiership was actually thinking whether to change this, uh, the broadcasting model because of like, the whole broadcasting landscape. So I think that, um, you know, the problem is that a small people, number of people will care a lot about this, but equally there'll be a lot of people who feel quite ambivalent about Channel 4 changing its ownership model. I, I had completely forgotten about, about Skins being on Channel 4. What a great yeah. show. It's a shame they're not, not producing uh, the hits like that anymore. You're pubescent, Dan. That's a problem. <laughs> I'm the same age. <laughs> I've got to, I'm in the spectator. I've got to be, you know. <laughs> you got a lot up. <laughs> I was just going to say that James made a really good point about Margaret Thatcher, right? So when she set it up, there were only three TV channels. So if you think about it by introducing another, she was pretty literally following her principle of improving a sector by increasing the competition. But the problem is that now there are about 460 channels available in the UK. So that argument doesn't really stand up anymore, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I guess coming from the, the kind of motivation for this is what interests me, because you've got on the one hand, the government saying that, well, it might be profitable now and it might be, be profit making now. But in a few years time, that may not be true. So we need to kind of unleash the power of private sector competition and then the, the kind of opponents of this move or the, the cynics would say well the government's only doing it because channel four has been so hostile towards the government in recent years and for my money and i'm interested in your thoughts on this as well james it seems like privatizing channel four if anything would free it up to be more critical of the government rather than less it seems like their niche is very much you know opposing um a lot of traditional kind of conservative policies in general in their output and obviously they're restricted to uh, some extent by the fact that they are state-owned and how far they could do that so if anything you know if, if it turns out the government's objective is in fact to do that on the low key which I'm not saying it is but it could be uh, then that might not work so well for them yeah i think this is a really interesting point you touch on which is that the idea that just because you're going to sort of privatize or, or market something it's going to become more right wing is, is for the birds and you see what skies happened with with comcast taking over uh, a few years ago and um i think that really is a salutary lesson for anyone who thinks that necessarily the market necessarily means a more kind of sort of back to the 80s uh thatcher right vision of what broadcasting should be is not necessarily the case of course shareholders are very much driven by sort of corporate values and a kind of hr value and a very kind of awareness of what people are saying so i, I think there's a real danger here that people who are necessarily cheering it on for that ideological reason will probably be disappointed. I think much more likely and the much more convincing case for Channel 4 changing its ownership model, as, as I can see, it, it is the idea of like freeing up capital and making it able to compete, etc. in terms of arguments for it. I mean, personally, the motivation, I have to say, I'm pretty cynical about this thing, Stan. So um, I'm not so much sure how how much this is love of Channel 4. And I have to say, some of the people cheering on the uh, privatization are not necessarily its most ardent advocates. So... Um, um, I, I have to say that um, I think that it will be interesting to see how it does. 
think the great mistake would be to to see it um, you know, purely in ideological terms. And um, it, it may well be to send a domestic lesson to the BBC. I mean, we all know about the government's current dilemmas with Operation Red Meat and Operation Save Big Dog um, to sort of give the, the backbenchers and the, the uh, Tory Shahs a bit of meat and grist. Um, but I, I also think that um, we may well, if we expect a certain kind of vision for Channel 4, may well be interested. And cause who knows what the market will turn out and who knows better that than the Alan Smith Institute. The, the, the ways and means and the intricacies of the market are a thing to behold very true well I, th- I think maybe we'll move on to you mentioned the bbc and your your mm. answer there in the kind of context of this not just being a channel 4 focus thing it's part of a wider yeah. attempt to rethink the role of the, the bbc as well do you think that this will add any impetus to calls for reforming the bbc in various different ways do you think that this is kind of the first step along that road because obviously we've, we've heard discussions about how things could change and, and will change in the future for the BBC, do you think this is going to make it any easier for the government by establishing a kind of precedent of change here? Or actually, are they going to see the scale of the opposition on uh, on Twitter at the very least, um, rather than necessarily from the public and, and back away from any further moves? Um, I mean, I think that this is a government who, which has constantly shirked the challenge when it comes to big things. We're going to talk about energy later. We can talk about planning. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very wary of uh, thinking that they're actually going to take on the might of the BBC. And I would just suggest this is probably about sending a message in, in mafioso terms rather than actually kind of engaging with some of the actual structural problems involved here. Um, I was looking up earlier, I, I was reading this um, fantastic tweet by Claudia Webb, uh, member for Leicester East, you know, should be honoured to the New Year's Honours list for um, services to comedy. She was just saying that, you know, about this was the seedbed of fascism, Channel 4 privatisation. Mm. I looked at Channel 4. Channel 4 was about, I think, in 2020 figures, about 10% of the news audience. So this is a relatively, this is this is already it's behind ITV, the BBC. It, it's a sort of market player and it's sort of about sending a message to the other broadcasters i think so i'm not necessarily sure i mean it's partly it could be part of a wider mission but sort of midway through a government a government that's sort of you remember there were sort of briefings in sort of 2020 that the, the government might get rid of the license fee they sort of shied away from that i would be surprised and to go back to your original question whether they would actually go much further than this this is already kind of you know put the cat among the pigeons i don't think they'll go much further Mm, famous um, state-owned broadcasters being the the hallmark of anti-fascism of course throughout history (laughs) excellent tweet and as you say services to comedy there should be some sort of reward for that emily yeah i was gonna say uh, it it seems to me that there's sort of very little direction like james was saying about this right so we've seen no white paper that they've promised about public sector broadcasting we don't really know when that's going to come out um they've announced it kind of out of the sudden but they've actually not stated about how they're going to sell it off so we don't know if they're going to sell it to a bidder we don't know if it's going to be floated on the stock market they've kind of announced it but they kind of have no real goal about the direction they'd like Channel 4 to go in. Yeah, I, I was looking at a few kind of predictions of if they were to, to kind of bid, set it off to the highest bidder, then who, who would go for it? And it seems like a lot of existing broadcasters, like Paramount, who own Channel 5, Sky, obviously, it mm. doesn't seem like it would be of much interest to the kind of the streaming services, more traditional broadcasters, and mainly to kind of to cover their, their behinds to not put too fine a term on it as a kind of defensive action rather than anything else. So... I guess there's there's that kind of brings us into the broader conversation about media plurality in mm. the UK because you know the the amount of times we've had the idea of a channel being uh, taken over or sold off or or whatnot and there being objections on the basis of well you know sometimes uh, if if 
one person owns too many channels or one company owns too many channels then the unthinking unwashed masses won't know what to think is the kind of the 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 implication i think of a lot of these arguments do you see do you you take a a fairly i I imagine you do but but perhaps not a a pro-market view of these sort of things and thinking well whoever wants to own media channels at this stage in in a broadly competitive market with so many alternatives they should be allowed to do so we shouldn't actually be that concerned about media ownership in the uk for now or or actually is there kind of more of a, a kernel of of legitimacy to those sort of concerns where you don't want the same company owning so many different media outlets um well i mean i think this point was made far more um eloquently than myself by uh, one of the many twitter anons that i follow which is just that god forbid that we allow channel four to be taken over and we see uh, great shows like Naked Attraction and Men Chelsea reduced to commercial pap um, and, you know, sold the lowest uh, bidder for, uh, you know, cheap flicks, etc. Mm. Um, I think that um, Channel 4 is a really interesting case where there's a lot of, there's some high-minded ideals and it's produced some, it's produced some very good shows over sort of uh, for almost 40 years. Equally, it's produced some, you know, frankly terrible cheap trash that I love to watch as well, which I wouldn't really necessarily, you know, confess if I was on some sort of high-minded art highbrow show but I, I i'm quite relaxed about the idea about i mean i, mean, I think if you look at it from stand back and look at it from sort of historical perspective i mean there has been all sorts of you know, issues about internal kind of like broadcast politics i think itv meridian in the early noughties was sort of taken over sorry granada was taken over in the early noughties and um there were all kind of things about structural ownership etc which are bad for the kind of the, the media landscape in a kind of business sense um ideologically i'm much more relaxed about it i think as you said the people dan who've been going for these kind of things who mentioned the press haven't really been the kind of you know sort of uh, red tooth and claw kind of capitalist um, nightmare visions like Rupert Murdoch that we think about. Um, I, I would be very surprised if anyone sort of ideological would, would go for, for, for Channel 4 as, as it stands. Um, I think much more interesting would be, as you say, the kind of people like, um, you know, talked earlier about Comcast and um, you know, whether they would go for someone like this um, and, and just reduce it to a, to a sort of standard kind of corporate uh, mindset. Uh, which is much more likely, I would say. Um, but personally, I think most people are quite relaxed about it. I mean, I think the overreaction, you know, overwhelming reaction so far has been one of ambivalence. You know, people were surprised by Channel 4 being in this kind of ownership model. Um, and I think that the people who care about it are sort of minority on either sides. You know, there'll be a bunch of Tory best really fired up by this. And there'll be, you know, obviously people, big fans of Channel 4 who'll do their best to stop it. We will wait and see what happens. But I think most people probably won't notice that much difference in the short to medium term. Oh, I think on that note, it's probably time to move on to the second topic for today's podcast, which is Partygate and civil service culture. After a short lull, Partygate has been back in the news this week following reports that the Metropolitan Police have fined 20 individuals for lockdown breaches in number 10, including, somewhat ironically, the government's former ethics chief, Helen McNamara. Head of ethics. That uh, sounds like a job title at the ASI that would go down quite well. <laughs> Don't <laughs> start, not. Dan. <laughs> However, these recent developments seem not to have created the same furore compared to when details of parties were first reported on and after the Sue Gray report was released. I think going to you first, James, do we think that these latest developments, these fines, pose any further risk to Bojo's premiership from MPs or is he? pretty much out of the woods for now it doesn't seem like the reporting on this this spate of fines quite hit home with the public in the same way as the initial party gate did um no i I think you're right i think we've got to remember the context of when this was happening we were sort of emerging from the shadow of covid and kind of you know november december 2021 which is when a lot of this stuff came out and referring to 
Christmas uh, 2020, when it was the second lockdown, you know, there's thousands of people dying a day. And it really referred to people that sort of struck home. I think the whole kind of context has changed, that Ukraine has been a large part of that. Um, I think, obviously, the UK had called, made a lot of the big decisions of COVID in 2021 correctly. Um, and therefore, some of that has sort of gone away. Um, I think equally, though, that um, it will still be an issue. You know, it will be a big thing if the Prime Minister of the day is fined and issued with a fixed penalty notice by the Metropolitan Police, particularly if the Conservatives in the next election, as they seem to want to run on an issue of law and order. It's going to be quite hard to level the charge of soft on crime at Sir Keir Starmer if um, you know a prime minister yourself who's been fined by the Metropolitan Police. That being said, it wasn't an, as much of an issue as it was sort of uh, three months ago when we were talking about, you know, sort of saving Boris and uh, all this kind of stuff about Operation Red Meat. So it seems to be far less of an issue than it was. Equally, it is of concern, I have to say, if you're people who are making the rules, you know, be that civil servants, be that special advisors who are not abiding by those rules at the same time. So it, it will be of concern. Will it be fatal? Probably not. But we will wait and see when all the details emerge. Emily, would you agree that there, there's kind of been this this shift in the public mood on Partygate being less of an issue with Ukraine going on? I mean, you know, personally, you had at least the, the initial story coming out and various reporters from various news outlets going out to random places in the UK and asking people on the streets, like, yeah, I've heard of that. And, you know, it's pretty terrible and stuff. I imagine if you did the same today and the fact that people aren't suggests that this is true, uh, that people wouldn't really have that same reaction to these new finds. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've been following um, polling quite closely, which maybe says quite a lot about me as a person, but um, I follow a Indeed it does. great, great <laughs> chat called James Johnson on um, Twitter. And I saw the most recent poll, which I think had Labour up by five points, but the Tories still, still rise by one point. I think actually support was being lost from the SNP, which I'm sure James will be a uh, particularly thrilled to hear about in light of his recent spectator piece. Um, I, I think <laughs> I think what will be particularly interesting um, will be if uh, support kind of does leave Boris again from the public, because I think MPs on this issue are very much led from the inbox. And James, do you think that, that these kind of events have shown up? There's actually some pretty fundamental problems with civil service culture. I know I've been talking recently with, with people about the, the internal home office culture and potentially ways of trying to, to get around that more on that uh, in the next few months from the ASI. But do you see this kind of wider problem with a, a lack of public facing responsibility amongst the civil service? Or is this uh, a, a few bad apples, so to speak? I, I think the danger is that, um, you know, you, you have a, you have a, a civil co- service culture where uh, people weren't really sure what was going on, who the accountability was. Now, I have to say, I think that you know, politics is a pretty demanding business. You know, you send a minister out there, get shot in the morning media round. Uh, you have a minister at the dispatch box who's accountable. And if this kind of thing was going on, I think questions very seriously have to be asked about the civil service. I mean, the last two, three years, you remember, of course, Dominic Cummings in, in 2020 and this supposed, uh, you know, war on the civil service, war on Whitehall, etc. You know, and there was a lot of sort of negative briefings like how dare they, you know, go for civil servants, etc., uh, I mean, obviously, I don't know the whole ins and outs of what went on in, in number 10, um, but it does raise questions about the judgment of some of the people there who, um, you know, probably won't necessarily be in the firing line or, or, or lose careers over this. 
um, as some special advisors and ministers would if, if they were equally named. And, you know, I think that the whole last two, three years, more broadly the pandemic, I mean, Partygate was was was, a, was, was caused by um, the, you know, the pandemic and the symptom of it. We, we sort of step back and look at it and what the future of the civil service is. You know, it's shifted to a much more hybrid working culture. If that's going to be the future of the civil service, well, it's very different from the man in Whitehall, isn't it? You know, necessarily it'll be working from home. Does that, as some would suggest, lead to an outsourcing culture? Does that lead to a culture away from Whitehall? Um, I, I just think that a lot of the changes uh, that have gone on during the pandemic haven't necessarily been processed by some of the people on the, on the ground. Um, and obviously the size of the state has grown and we've seen Simon Clark speak at uh, uh, the second best Westminster think tank, the IEA, the other day and talk about um, how they wanted to cut the number of civil servants by 70,000. And I think there will be a kind of real adjustment in, in the role between First of all, the human relationship between politicians and civil servants, but also the relationship between the state and uh, markets and, and individuals as well. And I think you're still seeing that drip through into political culture as well. There's still an impact. We, we cross the uh, living crisis, which is going to be the big thing over the next six months. I'm sure you guys will be out on the airwaves, uh, you know, sort of talking about that a lot. Um, but there'll be a real sort of demand. What's government going to do for me? You know, something must be done, etc. And I think that, you know, rightly or wrongly, that's been a legacy of COVID and sort of furlough where the government was paying 80% of a lot of people's salaries, you know, millions of people's salaries. So I still think all those things, wider questions about the relationship with the state and the individual are being worked through. One of the things that you mentioned there that I hadn't considered before, really interesting, is this rise of hybrid working culture in the civil yeah. service and how that might affect the kind of Westminster bubble culture. Mm. Do you have a sense of whether that you think that's a, a positive change or not? Because, I mean, there's plenty of people that would say, well, you know, if civil servants and, and the like were less involved in the, in this kind of Westminster bubble all the time and only making friends with people from their department and, the, and their, you know, kind of area of expertise and whatnot, then that might actually not be such a bad thing. Would you actually see that as, as kind of eroding some of the... the the benefits that comes with with having a bubble because you know we're, we're all part of one and i imagine we will think there are uh, various benefits to, to speaking to people with similar interests and whatnot i completely take on board what you say um i think you've got to look at what the sort of selling points of the civil service have been uh and two of which have been one of which has been institutional expertise so the institution carries on you know this idea of ministers come and go the civil service is forever my concern is talking to people who work at the civil service is that they fear that this culture is being eroded. They fear that, you know, met line managers, spoke to one person who left their job after about a year, never met their line manager, understandably, obviously, with COVID, but if that's going to be a permanent feature of the civil service, mm. there are dangers, there are obvious dangers. Um, the second point I would say is the civil service sort of prides itself on producing good all-rounders, you know, people who know the whole point of government, you know, with ministers, you have this thing where you do a brief and that's your sole brief for two years and you get moved on, etc. So the idea is you have a sort of more broader kind of appreciation for what the state is. And the danger is, is that if you're kind of siloed um, and aren't meeting people properly, uh, you, you run the risk of losing a lot of that. Um, I, I think some of these things are now being addressed. I think obviously some departments are going back to work, but equally, um, there are concerns, you know, by a significant number of people I talked to privately in the civil service who, who say that they, they do miss a lot of the sort of magic of Whitehall. I, I do wonder whether we have in the some of the political day to day battles that have gone on missed a longer term thing, which is that it might work well, hybrid working, you know, brought, you know, state carried on through the last two years, I'd say. 
but sort of five, 10, 15 years down the line, whether we're going to see, as we've seen now with a lot of lockdown and, and COVID elements, a lot of the long-term effects are starting to come through. And that's what I think is what's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you see this in, in a sort of parallel with, with think tank culture as well. You know, we'll finish our day at work and, and go down to the pub and have a chat with people who work on different areas of expertise and, yeah. and have a pint with them, get that update from them on, on the latest in their particular area. And I'm sure the same is is very much true amongst my, my friends in the civil service who go and drink at the same spot after work, even though they yeah. might work on different issues. Uh, and that kind of that knowledge transfer that is made so much easier by sharing the same workspace and going into work every day and, and having that kind of more traditional yeah. working culture is at risk of being eroded. So yeah, it's a, a really, really interesting point there to think about for the future. Um, I think it's probably time to move on to the final topic of our podcast for today and by far the, the most uh, interesting, I'm, I'm sure, because we all love to get worked up and excited about energy security. Amid soaring energy costs and the recent invasion of Ukraine, the West is undergoing a great shift in its energy policy. The UK government has today announced their response to this named the Energy Security Strategy. As the name would suggest, it plans to create the Great British Energy resilient to the volatile global mar- markets, whilst also alleviating a degree of the burden of households. It also intends to address the target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, a plan that has been widely criticised as unrealistic and bringing undue harm to consumers. So to start off, Daniel, I'd really like to know your opinion on this. How realistic do you think the plans are that have been announced today? Oh, I think in some ways it, it's uh, there's positives and negatives to put my best politician's uh, answer on it. The, the, the positives, I think you've got to focus on uh, the new nuclear commitments because I think there's been for, for a long time this reluctance to fully realize that nuclear does need to play a pretty essential role in providing the base load for our energy needs going into the next few decades. And there's been you know, kind of classic treasury brain on this that's been denting any sort of investment in new nuclear power plants and uh, the ones that, that were initially planned are, are now no longer being planned and it's, it's good to see the government recognizes that more needs to be done on this um, they've done exactly what they did with rail which is just put great british in front of something great british nuclear great british rail uh, and that's going to solve the whole problem um, but the the good kind of concrete stuff is a commitment to uh, invest and explore more in small modular reactors uh, the sort that are, are uh, hopefully at least quicker and easier to build so, so nuclear is a, a positive where i think there's there's issues and and this comes to a, a classic theme of the asi podcast which is of course nimbyism uh, is when it comes to wind power so we've seen some some good commitments on on expanding uh, offshore wind because um unless you're someone from spongebob squarepants you don't live under the sea and are unlikely to be affected uh, offshore wind power the problem is that offshore wind power is is more expensive and tends to have a longer lead-in time than onshore wind power and if you're talking about if one of your objectives is to try and alleviate the energy bills crisis that we're experiencing in the in the short run or at least you know, in the run-up to the next election the only way of really doing that from a su- supply perspective is onshore wind uh, and it seems like if you look at uh, many many figures in the conservative party at the moment who they're, they're just convinced that it would be a, a massive vote loser uh, they're not convinced that there's any kind of way around this like effectively bribing people with lower energy bills if they allow um, onshore wind to be built near them. Um, Chris Heaton-Harris, who kind of led the charge against wind farms under David Cameron's government, has 
Chief Whip now, he's probably been one of the key objectors to this, but there's plenty of other Conservative MPs who, who weren't very happy with this at all. Um, but I do think some of the criticism that's been levelled, the, the main thing that's that's been put onto it as well, we didn't get anything on energy efficiency, on, say, um, insulation for homes and whatnot. Um, and people who come from kind of similar side of the debate to, to ourselves, the ASI on this, will say this is actually another example of treasury brain. Um, and Rishi is unwilling to spend a few hundred million on improving um, insulation mm. and energy efficiency. And I think that's true. It is treasury brain. But sometimes treasury brain is not the worst thing in the world. It blocks things that we might want to spend money on, but it also blocks things that may not be the best use of, of taxpayer money. And I think that probably a lot of the uh, focus on energy efficiency not being included is is not actually the worst thing in the world. I'd really like to come back to your point about onshore wind, actually. So uh, we did some research in the office today and we found that so Octopus Energy runs a scheme that gives discounts of up to 50% uh, for customers living near wind turbines in areas of Yorkshire and Wales. Um, sounds to me like kind of a street boat idea. So the government has kind of been speculating it might expand the scheme further. So to put it in uh, the words of one of our interns, Daniel, do you think this is an effective tool to quill the NIMBYs? To quill the NIMBYs? Um, I think it's the only thing that's going to work, right? There's, you can't, uh, if anything, the the past few years uh, has taught us about UK planning system and any sort of development. NIMBYs will win if you try to fight them head on. They just will. Uh, there's there's no getting around it. The political incentives mean they'll win. The level of organised opposition and the dispersed level of support for development, um, classic case where they, they will win. So you've, you've got to make win-win propositions. Uh, street votes is one of them that we've talked about on the podcast before. And it seems like the government have at least in a limited way recognised this for, for onshore wind as well and, and seen Octopus's model and want to try and replicate that. The, the kind of concern I have, though, is that in the, the press release and the paper, I, th- I can't remember the exact phrasing, but I think it was, you know, with, with a limited number of communities, we will trial a small scale version of this programme. And in the same breath and on all of the Twitter announcements for the energy security strategy, there's all this talk about wide ranging ambition. We're not going to shirk the challenges like previous governments have. You contrast that with, you know, we'll we'll have a very small scale limited trial and, you know, we don't want to upset anybody and and whatnot. I I think they they really have missed an opportunity to to devise something like this on a a larger scale and, and actually make a difference to energy bills in the short term as well. I mean, it, it's fair to say that any sort of energy security strategy, especially in the context of net zero, you're mainly going to be looking at things that are in the medium term, especially with things like nuclear with such long lead times. And, and in fact, um, offshore wind at the moment, licensing approval can take up to 10 years in, in some cases. Now, they're, they're looking at that and it's very welcome that they are. But the, the one thing they could have done in the short term that would have made a big difference, um, they, they've haven't really embraced it with both hands. So that's a real shame. Yeah, you make a really good point about nuclear, actually. So I remember Boris said that 95% of energy needs will need to be low carbon generation by 2030. But um, Hinkley Point C will be the only nuclear plant planned to be operating by then. Um, so James, to turn to you, what sort of role do you think that fracking could have moving forward? Because to me, it seems that despite sort of previous and uh, previous public and political dislike of fracking, um, there may have been a change of view on this, especially in light of Putin's invasion and rising energy prices in the UK. 
Uh, well, I have to disagree with you, Emily, because uh, I think that Dan touches on a very good point, which is the power of the NIMBYs in in this country. Uh, and I remember one fantastic article by, I think, one Red Wall Tory MP who talks about how he wants fracking, but just not in his constituency. Um, and I think that I, I have to be very wary about it's like public choice economics, you know, the idea about the, you know, you've got a very small concentrated group of interests which are going to triumph over the much wider, larger groups of the whole population in the country. As, and everyone wants to get to the end point, you know, we sort of have um, the US system of sort of fracking, but no one's willing to kind of put the hard yards in there. And if we couldn't work during the coalition, I, I mean, I'd struggle to see where you've got a number 10 operation that is so weak, which is so responsive to certain pressure by backbenchers that any kind of concerted effort, I think, would... Um, make them do a rethink i think that energy security is much more of a thing now i think that the kind of you know sunny utopian idealism of a few years ago is gone or people are seeing in a much more kind of national security context and i think that's a kind of good clarifier for a lot of these cases you know i think people are looking at nuclear now through sort of cold hearted you know, cold eyed uh, realistic lenses um uh, so i think that can be a good thing sort of forcing people to think about all this stuff i think nuclear is much more likely to be the choice than fracking um just because i think we've got a number of different situations to and scenarios to to america um so i'm not sure fracking will necessarily be the kind of silver bullet that we all want it potentially to be um i think the nuclear thing is a much more interesting development in terms of the uk saying right these eight sites are where we're going to go for in the future and i think the welsh secretary simon hart is out there in america right now trying to draw up investment for a site in um, north wales as well so i think unfortunately for people who are advocates of fracking it's not going to be the one that trumps because of local concerns and the uk has a system which puts a lot of emphasis on local planning and local mps lobbying for their local area yeah you make a good point there so turning back to you daniel so obviously we've just spoken about you know whether there'd be any public support for it but obviously we've spoken about it quite a lot at the adam smith institute and actually we were pretty much in favor of fracking in our recent report so do you think at least on principle that fracking should have a big role moving forward yeah i mean i i think james is is absolutely right here that you know you're going to come up against those local concerns and that's exactly what what happened when when we first explored this unless you have a tried and tested mechanism for compensating people to a significant degree um, and we didn't really have that in the UK um, certainly not in comparison to say the US situation which had a much more generous and, and well worked out compensation scheme then you're not going to win people over but I, I think to maybe to a lesser extent but but nonetheless this is still a problem with nuclear power as well uh, it's less so for I, strangely it's less so for the larger plants that tend to be based further away from urban concentrations but if we're serious about doubling down on SMRs, small modular reactors, then we're going to come up against similar problems, right? I, there was a good uh, Times article, I think from your, your colleague, James um, James Forsyth, that spoke about um, the Prime Minister joking that he wants a small modular reactor for every yes. Labour constituency yes. in the land. A, a, an excellent quote, but I think that speaks to the, um, the kind of problems that come with any sort of diversification of, of nuclear compared to what's come before uh it, it might be that you know it, it's easier to to get around local objections if you for example give people money off their their bills in response to that but in fact the way that the government seems to be moving when it comes to financing new nuclear projects is is the opposite of that the regulated asset-based module rather than charging um consumers for the energy produced by nuclear power plants after they've been built um, they actually charge consumers for the ongoing construction costs now there's advantages to this and that you tend to get uh, lower risk and therefore lower interest rates for, uh, from 
the financial markets, you tend to get uh, lower cost projects overall and maybe guard against some of the cost overruns that plague large scale infrastructure projects in the UK. But from the other perspective of just getting the, the political buy-in or the planning buy-in for, say, a, a SMR in a local area, the prospect of, oh, and also we're going to put up your electricity bills while it's being built is probably going to harden opposition even more than would otherwise be the case. So there needs to be some way of trying to reconcile local interests with the, with the national interest, because at the moment they are sadly pitted against each other. Yeah, it, it rather seems to me that a lot of the opposition to fracking, um, and even to some extent nuclear, have been concerns that it won't actually be that useful as we try to reach net zero. So in light of this, do we think that the strategy illuminates the need of any aspects of net zero to be reconsidered? Well, I, I guess that you know th- there seems to be a, a misunderstanding about why things like nuclear or indeed gas-fired generation of some degree or, or hydroelectric need to play a role in any sort of net zero scenario. Because it's all very well to rely on wind power and solar power on the days where the wind is blowing and where the sun is shining. But there are plenty of days um, and sometimes periods that can last for a very long time uh, where that is not the case. And I know Emily was very excited for me to use the word dunkelflout on this podcast, a a word that literally translates to dark doldrums uh, and describes these days where the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. I think that's a metaphor for the wider UK. (laughs) Welcome to Dunkelflout, GB. (laughs) Very much so. Um, The next next channel (laughs) four programme, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But the the problem is that if you have these these Dunkelflout days, yes, I'm going to use it again, I'm obsessed (laughs) with this word, what you're going to get is you're going to need to to offset the shortfall in renewable uh, energy generation through A, the baseload, so you're going to have to have nuclear, you're going to have to have um, uh, hydroelectric and and whatnot, but also you're going to have to have some sort of storage capacity so that you can store the excess energy from renewables. And then when uh, the output drops, you can deploy that that excess energy. And all of this, we, we looked at this in a, a recent paper for the ASI, a couple of recent papers, actually. Uh, and it seems like the um, bays don't really have a solid estimate of what the energy mix is going to need to be uh, in, by 2050 for net zero, what sort of uh, electricity generation we're going to have. They've done estimates, but there's so many different estimates from different areas of government and, and different papers and, and uh, stuff over the last couple of years. And without a kind of accurate picture or as accurate as possible a forecast of what we're going to need, then it's not going to be very easy to plan for actually meeting that obligation, never mind getting over the the practical obstacles in the way. It could be that we plan for, say, a certain expansion of nuclear, a certain expansion of offshore wind, and we end up getting to 2050. And actually, after a week where the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, uh, we get blackouts. So it's one of those things that a lot more thought needs to be put into it. Uh, And it seems like the government's starting to, at least with the energy security strategy, but it seems like there's a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, you know, Dan, you and I have been kicking around Westminster for the best part of a decade, and we've seen how many of these kind of initiatives, etc. And I think only the whole Russia invading its neighbouring country has uh, prompted some of this kind of realistic thinking about energy security. Um, It's, I think, was really interesting as well. There was a story today by uh, Paul Wall uh, of the Eye, and he was just saying that, you know, the onshore wind strategy was still being changed, um, according to his reporting, as of last week. So this was being, you know, torn apart, ripped together, put back again, um, even as last week. So the idea that sort of 
as we all know, sort of, you know, the state will come down and say this is the strategy. It can often be, you know, misleading. There's been so much sort of tinkering going on that it seems that there's more, more of a kind of steer now from this number ten than we've had in a bit of a while. Uh, partly because the, the issues crept up the agenda, but equally, we all know that it's very likely to possibly change, particularly when the incumbent or ministers in reg- uh, re- relevant uh, uh, departments go elsewhere. Yeah, there's something really kind of cynical and, and depressing about the idea that this really important issue was not really being considered anywhere near as much as it should have until it became politically expedient to do so, right? And, you know, if it hadn't become politically expedient to do so, where would we be now in a kind of hypothetical and alternative reality where where uh, Putin did not invade Ukraine and energy prices did not go up by as much as a result of COVID supply chain disruptions, as well as the invasion, we, we'd probably be sitting and twiddling our thumbs and you know taking another few years to even begin to consider these sort of questions, which if you have net zero as a goal, and I think, you know, whatever you think of it, that's not going away. You, you kind of have to accept that. Um, the, the parallel I always think of is when it comes to uh, tobacco policy and this idea that, well, you know, we can argue about whether things like plain packaging actually are a good idea. But the fact is that there's no way in, on God's green earth they're ever going to go away. Um, I think net zero is the same. Um, and we've got to, to try and make it work as best we can in as uh, market-friendly way as possible in a way that cushions consumers from the extremely large cost of, of switching over to, um, to lower-cost energy sources. And I, I guess that just a general thought on, on net zero, something that I've been thinking about for the, the past few weeks, is that Obviously, from the UK's perspective, we want to we want to get to net zero ourselves to set an international example, etc. And because of our relative contribution to um, to global warming and greenhouse gas emissions, and and that's all well and good. But our comparative advantage, I think, here is is in actually developing the technology required to make that economically viable and to make that economically sensible. And for my money, the kind of let's say we've got a, a general pot of money to spend on net zero. Obviously, it's more complicated than that, but I'm simplifying. Then I, I'd be putting a lot more of that towards financing like early stage R&D into alternatives. We saw news um, earlier this week about the apparent fusion power breakthrough um, right here on the, the shores of Great Britain uh, that seems like we're getting closer towards uh, almost science fiction form of energy generation. Um, And for me, that's where the UK can play the biggest role on the global scale. Because remember, we do not make up a large percentage of of global emissions. Um, We're only a small part of that story. And the only thing that's going to really change things for on a a global and international scale is actually making technology viable and economically attractive because... And equally, I think if you've got a limited amount of political capital, as every government does, personally, I think I would be quite relaxed about seeing a kind of, you know, the development going into the Oxford, Cambridge, London arc, you know, and making Mm -hmm. that that golden triangle much more of a research hub. I think perhaps that's probably the UK's best contribution to the world stage rather than necessarily some of the political capital going into uh, debates about fracking, etc., which I'm, you know, not so sure will, will lead to much. I think, as you say, the R&D role is something the UK can really lead on. Um, and that's why I think potentially on a global capacity, if the government wants to go behind a global Britain agenda, this would be a very good thing to get behind. Yeah. So uh, as a final point, which I think will be quite important to the Adam Smith Institute, obviously, because we've been doing a lot on the cost of living. Do we think that you know, anything that they've outlined in the strategy will have any impact on energy bills. So I think Quasi Quartan came out today and did admit that it's probably not going to have any impact for 
something like three to four years. And then Ed Miliband came out straight afterwards and said, no, actually, I don't think it's going to make any impact this decade. So how hopeful are we that the strategy is actually going to help people who are struggling with energy bills at the moment? Yeah, I think that, that Ed Miliband is right on this. Um, not a sentence that I say necessarily <laughs> very often, um, but, but he's absolutely right. And, and to be fair to uh, the government, here. I don't think that this aspect of their energy strategy was designed to be the bit that alleviated short-term cost of living pressures. Now, there's arguments about the, the kind of insulation and energy efficiency stuff that may have had a more immediate impact. There's arguments around onshore wind, which could have been deployed fairly quickly if there was there was more movement on that. But broadly speaking, I think this is a job for the Chancellor. Uh, and the Chancellor, I think, as our spring statement response outlined, failed in that response um, quite spectacularly when it came to shirking, say, uh, any sort of benefits uprating or even one-off payments to low-income households and the, the kind of fairly, I think, small uh, discretionary boost to the, the household support fund that went nowhere near far enough to help people who are really, really struggling with their energy bills. Um, although that said, you know, people that aren't on very low income, people on, you know, on low middle incomes will also be struggling here as well. Um, so it's not just a case of um, of people on the lowest incomes that are going to really feel the bite of the price rise. And as someone who got their, their bulb energy bill update through uh, a few days ago, I, I count myself amongst those uh, comfortable enough but nonetheless particularly unhappy and uh, maybe maybe struggling a little bit and, and turning down the heating in the evenings um, hence wearing a jumper during this podcast rather than having my my heating on full blast um I, I i think it's interesting more in kind of as an indicator of where the government's sort of going i think nuclear i think as i say the recent crises have sort of clarified a lot of the talking around this and i think the nuclear is clearly something that the government has alighted upon as a a sensible strategy mid to long term. I agree with Dan. I don't think it's about cost of living. This was about energy security. Um, you know, this whole strategy is not something with insulation, for instance. So I don't think it'll necessarily help people in the pocket. The hope is that, you know, 10 years down the line, this will have an impact. Much like if we'd had a serious conversation 10 years ago about all this kind of stuff, we might wouldn't be in the mess we are right now. Well, I think on that note, it's probably time to bring this episode of The Pin Factory to a close. My name's Daniel Pryor. I've been the head of research and still am, in fact, the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute. That's some interesting phrasing yes, there. Like uh, <laughs> yeah. very, very pleased to be joined by my uh, my two wonderful guests, uh, co-host and head of comms, Emily Fielder and James Hill, the diary editor at The Spectator. If you like what you've heard then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and we will see you next week for yet more banter and analysis mm-hmm.